Stoicism is self-help for cool people right now. It's very much in, in fashion and for good reason. But I think that we've left out one of the most important parts of Stoicism, and that is the exact same part that has been missing from self-help for so long. That's Michael Schellenberger, and this is The Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Wednesday. I am grateful for you tuning in with me today as we have a brand new featured speaker here to impart some wisdom about the self-help world that we live in today and why some of the information that we've gotten has ultimately failed us. So in his talk, he's going to give us a brief history lesson about self-help, and then he's going to share what he believes is the missing piece in self-help. And in identifying that missing piece, we can then fill that gap and go out to live much more meaningful and much more courageous lives. So without further ado, here's Michael Schellenberger. Enjoy. I think to really get at this issue of why self-help has failed both us as individuals and us as a society, we need to go back to the beginning of the self-help movement. Its predecessor was this thing called the human potential movement, and it had huge aspirations. It was going to liberate us from doom. It was going to create new possibilities of freedom for us. One of the most important founders of the human potential movement was an Austrian psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl. Would you just raise your hand if you've ever heard of Viktor Frankl? Would you just keep your hand up if you've read his book, Man's Search for Meaning, or seen his videos? Oh, good. Most of you haven't. I get to explain him. Viktor Frankl was a prodigy of psychology. He grew up in Vienna in the 1920s, um, as, a, as a boy, in fact, earlier than that, uh, he wrote a famous letter to Sigmund Freud, who was also in Vienna at the time, the age of 15, and Freud was so blown away by this letter that he offered to help get it published in a peer-reviewed scholarly journal. But over time, Frankel moved away from Freud's basic view, which was that in order to deal with your present-day unhappiness, you have to understand the ways in which you were traumatized as a child. That's the basic idea of psychoanalysis and a lot of psychotherapy is that in order to heal yourself in the present, you have to go back to the past. But Frankel found this didn't work. At the, when he was uh, 23 years old in 1928, he created a set of youth counseling centers in Vienna because there were so many suicides by high school and college students Depression was widespread. And he created these youth counseling centers, including with, with, for very depressed and suicidal kids, and he asked them, why don't you kill yourself? 
I mean, it was completely wild, impolite question, maybe very rude. Here's somebody that is considering suicide, and you're asking them, why don't you kill yourself? And, but after they got over their shock of being asked that question, the young people came up with answers, and they were often similar. I, it would devastate my parents if I killed myself, and I love my parents, and I wouldn't want to do that to them. I would love to be married one day and have kids, maybe with the girlfriend or boyfriend I have right now. Or I want to be an artist and achieve a different kind of painting. Or I want to be an engineer and create great things. And what Frankel discovered is that as he got people in touch with their goals, as he got them excited about what they could achieve, they overcame their depression. They didn't feel suicidal anymore. In fact, Frankel almost single-handedly eliminated suicides um, among college and high school students in Vienna over, over the next several years. This became known as something that we now call cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. And there were two other founders of this tradition, Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck. And Beck in particular found a very similar thing, that doing psychoanalysis didn't help people with their depression. Talking more about their difficult childhoods actually made people more depressed in many cases. What Beck discovered is that all depressed people have an inner critical voice, a very dark and negative voice. And sometimes that voice is conscious to people and sometimes it's unconscious. But there's always three parts to it. The first is, I'm a terrible person, I'm a weak person, I'm a bad person, I'm incapable, I'm a victim. That's the first part. The second was that the world is a pretty terrible place, full of cruelty and greed and oppression. And the third is that the future is dark, Civilization is coming to an end. The world might be coming to an end. I got interested in that philosophy and cognitive, this, this insight, because when I was reading books about the environment 15 years ago, I found myself getting very depressed. I didn't feel happy at all. I felt very depressed about myself and my world. But when I read books about the civil rights movement, about Martin Luther King, I, found, I felt really happy. I felt really good about it. And I knew there was something going on with that particular story. So what Beck did is he just asked his patients to just try to argue back against that, their own critical voice. Let's find the ways in which you think you're a good person, a strong person, a creative person, a caring person. Let's talk about the ways in which the world is full of opportunity and possibility. And let's think about how the future could be bright and hopeful, full of possibility. And it worked. And this became the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. The third psychologist, Albert Ellis, was also very influenced by this strategy. But he drew on, in fact, they all were influenced by a philosophical tradition known as Stoicism. Would you just raise your hand if you've heard of Stoicism? Oh, I love it. Would you keep your hand up if you've read any works by Stoics? Seneca? Anybody? Stoicism is self-help for cool people right now. It's very much in, in fashion and for good reason. But I think that we've left out one of the most important parts of Stoicism, and that is the exact same part that has been missing from self-help for so long. I only recently started reading works of Stoic, Stoics, in fact, less than a year ago. I, the first book I read was Seneca, and I was blown away by how contemporary a book thousands of years old felt to me. 
There's a particular passage in it where he describes a a boy from the city-state of Sparta, which of course is the famous warrior city-state from the movie 300 that many of you may have seen. Fantastic movie. And the boy was captured and he said, I shall not be a slave. And he proceeds, when they give him his first order, he proceeds to run as fast as he can and bash his head against the wall until he dies. That's the entire story in that part of Seneca's book. And it's so weird like, and so striking, but I was impressed when I read it, it made me feel happy reading about this slave boy who bashed his head out. Why would that be? Well, Seneca knew that the reason was is that that kind of meditation on one's death can make one really appreciate the possibility of one's life. And this is, of course, not new at all. Ever since I, I read that book, I, I ordered myself a replica of a human skull, which, as many of you know, is referred to as a memento mori, which is Latin for remember your death. And these start showing up in 17th century paintings. They were very popular among monks in the Christian tradition. And the idea is to keep yourself humble in some ways, to keep yourself aware But it had this other purpose, I think, which is to bring a kind of intensity to your life, a kind of new focus and even excitement about being alive. And I keep it on my bookshelf and stare at it every day. And it's not just in Christianity, and it's not just in Stoicism. We see it in Buddhism and many other ancient wisdom traditions, the death meditation. Many of you might have had the experience of walking through a cemetery and finding it not depressing at all, but actually quite exciting Thank God I'm not one of these guys, right? I'm, I'm one of the living, and it creates a sense of possibility and intensity. But there's a criticism of this, of course. This is all just a philosophy for privileged people, for the bourgeoisie, for the, the people who can afford it. Real victims can't afford to have this kind of thinking. That's what adherents to victim ideology say. It's not possible for people truly oppressed to engage in this kind of thinking. And indeed, it was put to the test by Viktor Frankl himself. Viktor Frankl, in 1941, just one month after he married his longtime girlfriend, was captured by the Nazis. He and his wife and his parents were all taken to concentration camps, and they were split up, and everything was taken from Frankl. They took his wife, they took his parents, they took, literally stripped them of their clothes, and the men were just there shivering naked. And in his coat pocket, Frankel had the manuscript of a book he had slaved over about this new philosophy, this new psychotherapy that he was creating, kind of language therapy is what he called it, or logotherapy. He lost everything. This was the ultimate test. Could he survive the concentration camps? His own teaching said he could but he needed to have a goal. He needed to have a reason to survive the concentration camps. It was obvious what it would be. He wanted to see his parents again. He wanted to be reunited with his wife. He wanted to rewrite that book that he had written. But not just rewrite it, he wanted to write a whole new book, and the book would be about how he survived the concentration camps. And people think that Everybody in the concentration camps, if they died, they were simply killed by the Nazis. But a lot of people died because they just didn't see any reason for living. They'd been victims of so much cruelty and oppression that they starved, just lost the will to live. But Frankel didn't. He lived. He got out of the concentration camp and discovered that 
His wife had been killed by the Nazis. His parents had been killed by the Nazis. Obviously could not recover his book. But that even wasn't enough. He said, I need to remake my life. I need to find a new love. And I'm gonna, I need to remember my parents. And I'm going to rewrite that book. And that's what he did. And it's now called Man's Search for Meaning. And it became a bestseller. 10 million copies sold. I, I've read that book probably 10 times, and every time I read it, I feel inspired. In fact, during, when COVID first hit, all of my plans for the year were completely destroyed. I was planning a big book tour. I was going to travel around the world and campaign on environmental issues, which I'm super passionate about. It was all gone, and I spent a good couple of weeks just depressed, you know, sleeping 12 hours a day, watching way too many YouTube videos, and I discovered that, that someone had put these old Viktor Frankl videos on YouTube, and I watched them and was just absolutely mesmerized. And I realized that this is it. Like, this is my chance. I have to find a goal. And so I did. I, I set a new goal for myself, write a book. It's coming out next month. And I've never lost sight of my death in an important sense. When I was eight years old, I was riding my bike to soccer practice, and I was run over by a truck and almost died, temporarily blind, fractured my skull. And I was struck at that, I was struck afterwards that really, and this is a common experience for people that almost die, is that the only thing you have to do is die. That's it. You don't have to be in the relationship that you're in right now. You don't have to be in the job or the school that you're in right now. You can quit all of it. You can do anything, and freedom is open up to you if you confront and accept that death is the only thing required of you. I think this is what's missing from self-help. It's lost the bloodiness that was there in Stoicism, the confrontation with death. And there is a twist to all of this, which is that when psychologists do experiments in focus groups or with groups of, with people, and they just remind people of their deaths, and they don't give people a chance to process it or construct some new goals for themselves, that people become pretty small. They become actually more status-oriented, more insecure, more likely to put other people down, meaner in their views towards people different than themselves. But there's a different kind of psychological experiment that they've started to do, which is very, very different, which is instead of thinking about your death in the future, they have people take a minute to imagine that they are dying right now and that all they can do in that one minute as they're thinking about their deaths is to think about their lives they've already lived. And what they find is it generates a very different experience, that really all people can do is be grateful for their lives that they've had up to then. And after that, are in a different place to consider their goals. And so what you can do now is think about how do you want to live this one precious life that you have? What are your goals for yourself? How will you make the most of it? How will you intensify the, everything that is about to come? Big thanks to Michael Schellenberger for stopping by. If you'd like to connect with him, you can go to his website, schellenberger.org. His Instagram is Schellenberger, and his latest book is entitled San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. And I got this clip from YouTube. It is entitled, What's the Secret to Living a Meaningful Life? 
Michael Schellenberger Brain Bar. And I'll have links to everything I just mentioned, along with a link to the entire talk. They will all be in the show description below. All right. That is a wrap for me. I hope you have a balanced rest of your day and I will see you back here tomorrow. So until then, stay strong. Later.